In our Parsha, we read about the accidental murderer and the city of refuge and the sanctuary city. And this is featured three times in the Torah. In our Parsha, Parsha's Masay, the second of our double Parsha. In Parsha's Vaeschanon, Deuteronomy chapter 4. In Deuteronomy chapter 19, Parsha Shoftim as well. We read about it. And the story is like this. If someone commits a murder, so if it is an intentional murder, murder in the first degree, well, that's a capital crime. But if it is an accident, if it's an accidental murder, then the person must go into exile. The person must move to the city of refuge and remain there until the death of the Kohen Adol, until the death of the high priest. Now, if the accidental murderer leaves the city of refuge before the high priest dies, then the relative of the victim, the vengeful relative, can kill the accidental murderer without any repercussions. Just to stay in the city of refuge, the sanctuary city, there he's safe. If he leaves, he is vulnerable to being attacked by the relative of the victim of the accidental murderer. Now, what exactly is a city of refuge? So the Torah tells us that there are six designated cities, three on the east bank of the Jordan and three in Israel proper, and they are equidistant from each other so that the accidental murderer is never too far from the city of refuge. Plus, there are also 42 Levite cities that also double as cities of refuge, and there's some slight differences between the two, but those 42 cities as well can be a place where the accidental murderer can escape to. The Talmud actually tells us that the top of the altar can perhaps also serve as a refuge for the accidental murderer, but When we speak about the city of refuge, we're most often referring to these six cities that an accidental murderer must relocate to in the event that they kill someone accidentally. Now, these cities are otherwise regular cities. There's other people who live there as well. And they have to have the amenities of a regular city. It has to have a good water source. It has to have a good economy. And it has to have a decent population. But it cannot be too big of a metropolis because then the vengeful relative would go there perhaps often. And the Talmud tells us that to clear the paths to the city, it has to have well-marked directions and signposts so that the murderer can flee there and know where they're going. And the Rambam, when he talks about the cities of refuge, he tells us that there cannot be any obstacles leading to the city. There can't be any valleys or mountains or rivers. you got to make bridges to go across. And you have to have signs everywhere. If you're an accidental murderer, here is where you run to the city of refuge. And the Talmud also tells us that you have to make this city livable, both from a physical perspective and from a spiritual perspective as well. The verse tells us, this is actually featured in Parshas Va'eschanan, Deuteronomy 4.42 that an accidental murderer flees to one of these cities and lives. So these cities have to be livable, says the Talmud. They also have to be livable spiritually, meaning that if a person has to go into exile, they have to go to the city of refuge, and they're a student of a great rabbi who's teaching him Torah. Well, this person needs Torah for their life as well. And the city has to be livable. 
So therefore the rabbi has to move to the city too. Because living without Torah, is that really life? And thus the accidental murderer has to bring the yeshiva and the great rabbi with him. Today, perhaps we could say that so long as you have data and bandwidth and you're able to download the podcasts, maybe the rabbi would not need to move there with you. Moreover, we're told in the Talmud that the city has to be a righteous city. It has to be a city that has elders and the accidental murderer moves to the city. And once you're in the city, you cannot leave. And even if there is a mitzvah to be done out of the city, if there is testimony that only you know, you cannot leave the city to testify about it. And even to save a life. If there is a war, if there is a building that collapses, if there is a tsunami that sweeps into town and you need people to go find survivors, if there is a fire, it doesn't matter, you cannot leave. Even if the entire nation needs the services of this accidental murderer, he is not allowed to leave the city until the death of the high priest. Now, we read in the book of Deuteronomy that Moshe designated three cities on the east bank of the Jordan to serve as sanctuary cities, and Joshua designated the three other cities on the west side of the Jordan once the land of Israel, the land of Canaan, was conquered. And we're told that even though the three cities that Moshe designated were not operational until all six were designated, Nevertheless, Talmud tells us that Moshe, he loved to do mitzvos, and he jumped on the opportunity to do even a partial mitzvah, even though you cannot prepare all six cities, because after all, Moshe died on the east side of the Jordan. Nevertheless, there was an opportunity to do a partial mitzvah, and Moshe, says the Talmud Book of Marcos, page 10a, loved to do mitzvos, and therefore he seized the opportunity and he designated, he separated these three cities. Now, in addition, we're told that in Messianic times, there will be three additional cities that are going to be added, bringing the total number of sanctuary cities to nine, three on the east side of the Jordan, three on the west side, and three to be designated in the future. This is the law of the city of refuge in a nutshell. Let's examine this mitzvah a little bit deeper. Because when we examine it, we find that there are several strange things about this particular mitzvah. For one, we're told that the accidental murderer must remain in the city of refuge until the death of the high priest, until the death of the Kohen Gadol. What exactly is the connection between the accidental murderer and the death of the high priest? Now, truth be told, this question was asked before, and there are various answers given. Our sages tell us that the Kohen Gadol, well, he is the one who brings atonement for the entire Jewish people. He is the one who makes the lives of the Jewish people long by earning the nation expiation and atonement and forgiveness, the Kohen Gadol ensures that we live long. This accidental murder, 
He killed someone. He killed one of his brethren. And even though it was an accident, nevertheless, he represents the shortening of life, and therefore it is inappropriate for these two people to live together, the one who makes the lives of others long and the one who makes the lives of others short. They're totally incompatible, and therefore they have to remain separate. Only once the Kohengadol dies can the accidental murderer be released. That is one idea featured in our sages. The Talmud tells us another idea, another angle of this, that the Kohen Gadol has some degree of culpability for the accidental murder. Why? Says the Talmud, he should have prayed, he should have beseeched God for mercy on behalf of the people of his generation. And therefore, any accidents that happen can be placed at his feet, and therefore his death, so to speak, when he is punished, if you will, for not fulfilling his duties properly, for not executing the responsibilities of the office of the Kohen Gadol properly, that releases all the accidental murderers. Now, the Kabbalists, they say something really interesting, perhaps a bit mystifying too. They say that the soul of the Kohen Gadol is almost like a clearinghouse for all the souls that were in limbo. If you have someone who was killed accidentally, it wasn't their time to go. And their soul is kind of in limbo. It is hanging in balance and the soul has no respite until the death of the Kohen Gadol. And therefore, the crime, if you will, of the accidental murderer is not resolved until the soul of the deceased kind of moves on to the next stage with the death of the Kohen Gadol. What that means, I don't know, it's very Kabbalistic, but let us continue. Now, I had what I consider to be an interesting observation. It seems to me that there is a conspicuous overlap between the accidental murderer and the Kohen Gadol. The verse tells us in Leviticus 21.12 that a Kohen Gadol is not allowed to leave the sanctuary. Umin hamikdash lo Now, there's a dispute. Does that mean that he can literally not leave the sanctuary? Or perhaps it means that he cannot leave the purity and the sanctity of the high priest. But regardless, isn't it interesting that both the accidental murderer and the Kohen Gadol are, to a certain extent, sequestered, isolated completely? The accidental murderer is not allowed to leave the city of refuge under any circumstances, and the Kohen Gadol is not allowed to leave the sanctuary or the sanctity of high priesthood under any circumstances. And they do indeed leave at the same time. When the Kohen Gadol's watch has ended, when he finally gets to leave the sanctuary, when he dies, the accidental murderer leaves the city of refuge as well. So it seems like to me that the connections between these two 
seem to ride quite deep. Additionally, I find it really interesting that we're told that there will be three more cities of refuge in messianic times. And I think this raises a question. Why will there be a need to add more cities of refuge, more sanctuary cities for accidental murderers in messianic times? Are there going to be more accidental murderers in messianic times? I would have imagined that during the utopian era of the Messiah, there will be fewer accidents. Why do we need more sanctuary cities, more cities of refuge in messianic times? A third point to ponder is the vengeful relative. That the person was killed, the victim, they have a relative. And in the event that the accidental murderer leaves the city of refuge before the death of thy priest, the relative, the vengeful relative, is allowed to kill extrajudicially, to kill the murderer without any repercussions. Now, the Talmud tells us in the book of Sanhedrin, page 45b, suppose the victim does not have any relatives. Who is the vengeful relative? So I would have thought, well, if there are no vengeful relatives, then the accidental murderer has nothing to worry about. You could leave the city of refuge, and there are no relatives of the deceased. You could leave without being scared, without being worried that someone's going to come and pounce upon you and kill you. But the Talmud tells us that actually, in the event that the victim has no relatives, the court will appoint a relative, so to speak, even though they're not related, who can kill the accidental murderer without repercussions should he leave the sanctuary city. Now, what do we make of that? And I think in general, this entire subject is somewhat foreign to us. And as we always try to do, we ask the question, hey, if this is a mitzvah we cannot do, we don't have a Jewish system of laws in place, we don't have cities of refuge, we cannot fulfill this law, is there anything for us to learn? Under our current circumstances, what do we make of the accidental murderer, of the city of refuge, running away, waiting until the coin gadol dies, spending your time in the city? What do we make of this? Is there anything for us to learn here? So I want to suggest a new approach. Now, before we begin, I want to make it clear. I don't think this is the only way to view this subject. I don't claim that this is the simplest interpretation of the subject. I am fully hereby acknowledging that this is a novel and homiletical approach. You have been warned. Let's begin. Moshe designated the three cities on the east bank of the Jordan that will serve as cities of refuge. And even though they won't be functional until Joshua designated the other three, nevertheless, Moshe set aside the first three cities. Why? So, we already quoted the Talmud earlier. Moshe was preternaturally voracious in getting mitzvos, 
The Talmud compares him to someone who loves money and is never satisfied with money, and he grabs what he can. Moshe loved mitzvos and was never satisfied with mitzvos and any opportunity that he had to do another mitzvah. He ran and he said, you know what? This is only a partial mitzvah. I'll do what I can. And he designated the three cities on the east bank of the Jordan. Now our sages give us another reason why Moshe designated the three sanctuary cities. The Midrash tells us that Moshe had a special affinity for this mitzvah in particular. Why? Says the Midrash, Moshe dedicated himself to this mitzvah. Why? Because someone who enjoys a dish knows what it tastes like. Moshe is someone who knows what the dish of a city of refuge tastes like. Why? Because when he killed the Egyptian, all the way back to the beginning of Exodus, Moshe grows up in Pharaoh's palace. He gets a little older and he goes out to inspect the well-being of his brethren. And he sees an Egyptian man striking a Hebrew man of his fellow. And he kills him. And the next day, Moshe's crime is discovered. And he has to flee. And he runs to a sanctuary city. He runs to Midian. And now God says, hey, this is going to be not just by you. This is going to be applied by many other murderers. And Moshe says, I love this mitzvah. I connect with this mitzvah. I understand this mitzvah from experience. Moshe killed the Egyptian. And he had to escape into exile. And he went to Midian. And because Moshe himself went to a city of refuge, therefore he dedicated himself specifically to this mitzvah. Now the Kabbalists say something really wild. And as always, whenever I talk about what the Kabbalists say, I make the disclaimer that I don't really know what this means. But I'll say it anyhow. Because after all, we're in the Torch Center North. The Torch Center Tundra. It's the summer. If you're listening to the Parsha podcast, you deserve a little spice. So here we go. The Kabbalists tell us that Moshe was a reincarnation of Abel. And the Egyptian man was a reincarnation of Cain. And that's when Moshe killed the Egyptian man. That was revenge for the first homicide. And thus it was appropriate. However, it was a bit premature. There was something questionable about what Moshe did. And that's why he needed to be exiled. And in fact, the Kabbalists point out that the verse says that you should make these cities of refuge so that a murderer can escape to there, shama to there. The word shama, if you scramble the letters, is the same letters as the word Moshe, because Moshe was the first one who did this. Now, in a more granular level, the Kabbalists tell us that parts of Cain's soul were distributed in the Egyptian 
that Moshe killed, in Jethro, Moshe's father-in-law, and in Korach, Moshe's first cousin, and the person who made a claim on Moshe's leadership. And Moshe killed the Egyptian, and Jethro, he was able to remove the aspect of Cain that was within him and became righteous and converted. And Korach, he was swallowed up in the ground in a way reminiscent of what happened to Abel, that Abel was swallowed up in the ground. So that's a little bit of a Kabbalistic twist on what's happening over here. Moshe is killing the Egyptian man, and on a certain level, on some sort of spiritual plane, this is a way of rectifying the first homicide when Cain killed Abel. And obviously this is very advanced stuff here that the Kabbalists are telling us. But regardless, there is an astonishing idea in this Midrash. On a certain level, to a certain extent, the first accidental murderer was Moshe. And the first city of refuge was when he escaped to Midian after murdering the Egyptian man who was striking the Hebrew man of his brethren. How intriguing. Now, how old was Moshe when he went out to his brethren and killed the Egyptian man? So opinions differ. Some say 12, others say 20. But regardless, it was many, many decades later when Moshe returned, aged 80, to begin the Exodus and to save the nation. Moshe thus remained in the quote-unquote city of refuge for a very long time. And when he finally emerged from the city of refuge, when he was finally rehabilitated and restored to his previous stomping grounds, to his previous surroundings, he was a prophet about to embark on the most dramatic and consequential mission of all time. Now, what would have happened had Moshe not killed the Egyptian and not gone to the quote-unquote city of refuge? Could he possibly have become Moshe? I am very confident in saying the answer is no. It was only precisely because he had this extended period of exile away from Egypt, away from his brethren, away from society, alone in Midian. It's only due to that that he became qualified to be the person he became. And the Midrash is telling us that Moshe was exiled to a sanctuary city, to a city of refuge. And this was part of his ascent to becoming the greatest person who ever lived, the person who saved the nation, the person who orchestrated all the plagues and miracles in Egypt, the one who became the greatest prophet of all time, who gave us the Torah. Evidently, the concept of going into exile, of the sanctuary city, of the city of refuge, it's much more than just punishment for someone who committed manslaughter. And it's more than a refuge from the vengeful relative. And it's more than just a rehabilitation 
for a criminal, it's an incubator for greatness. If our sages tell us that Moshe had a particular affinity for this mitzvah, he benefited from it. To a certain extent, Moshe himself went to a city of refuge. And we know that he emerged from it as the person who could save the nation from Egypt. It must mean that this kind of experience is one that can lead to the development and actualization of latent potential. Had Moshe not gone into exile, he would not have become what he became. And for all of us, perhaps we can suggest, there must be an incubation period where our natural innate abilities get developed and honed and surfaced to a certain extent. We can all benefit from a trip to the incubator, from a trip to the sanctuary city. Today, the law of the accidental murder is not followed. We have no system of Jewish law in place. We have no network of Jewish courts. The cities of refuge are not all activated. But this idea is very much present in our lives. Perhaps we can suggest no actual, dramatic, transformative greatness can emerge without some sort of sanctuary city-like incubator period. Let me explain what I mean. One of the central tenets of our philosophy, and one of the ideas that we try to discuss a lot on the Parsha podcast, is that we were not placed here to be average. The Almighty demands that we become big, that we become special. And each and every one of us are given extraordinary tools and abilities that developed and actualized properly can result in us becoming special. When we start off, we're raw, we're undeveloped, we're potential. The city of refuge concept, of course, it's a punishment, it's a salvation, it's rehabilitation, but it also functions as an incubator to help someone develop themselves into the person that the Almighty created them to become. And today, we don't have actual cities of refuge. We don't have actual sanctuary cities, at least not the way they're defined in the Torah. But I think we can all benefit from this aspect of the ancient sanctuary cities. All of us can benefit from having a period of incubation where our skills, where our abilities, where our talents can develop and flower. I think if we study exactly what is done to this person, what situation are they placed in, I think we see perhaps how indeed our own abilities can be surfaced, can flourish. So the person who killed accidentally is sent to the city of refuge and is given everything that they need to live and flourish, but their world shrinks. His world narrows. There is a certain degree of constriction. You cannot leave the boundaries of this city. 
There's a certain elimination of perspective. There's a certain narrowing of possibilities. There's a certain intense focus on a much smaller scale. I think this applies to anyone that wants to become great in anything. If you want to be the world's greatest tennis player, or pianist, or writer, or you want to become whatever whatever it is, in any area that you want to develop, you need to focus on that. You need to concentrate on that. You cannot become a generalist, a jack of all trades, someone who tries and tests everything. Let's test this for a little bit. Oh, it doesn't work. Let me test that for a little bit. Oh, that didn't work either. And you test a million things and then you have a lot of exposure, but it's all an inch deep and a mile wide. There's a certain elimination here of options, a certain constriction of perspective, and you focus in on one thing and you eliminate a lot of other things. And that is a condition where the abilities that you have can indeed surface. There's also an element of hard work done in obscurity. Whatever is done in the city of refuge is done away from the crowds. It's removed from others. There's no glory. There's no accolades. There's no plaudits, no honors, just hard work. And it's very meaningful and personally gratifying, but others are unaware of it. You are laboring in obscurity, preparing for the big stage. Moshe wasn't just twiddling his thumbs in Midian, waiting to be called up to the big leagues. He was working himself. He was developing himself. He was becoming the person that would qualify to lead the nation out of Egypt. And in the sanctuary city, in the incubator, you can never leave. There has to be consistency. You have to stay in this world and you can't leave it and the accidental murder is not even allowed to leave to save a life. But when the time is ripe, what emerges is something that has matured and developed and is ready for prime time. You imagine the Jews in Egypt, they're enslaved, they're oppressed. You'd imagine that they're scrambling for solutions. And I'd bet the last person that they would think could help them is Moshe. Moshe, he left when he was 12 or 20. He left decades ago. He is totally removed from the purview of the Jewish people. And it's only Moshe who can save them. Can you imagine the nation hearing about Moshe the first time? Moshe, where did he come from? I haven't thought about him in decades. And suddenly he waltzes in to save the nation. But the truth is, is that Moshe was in the incubator. He was quietly growing, maturing, developing, Becoming a prophet, becoming great, becoming a giant, priming himself, developing himself into the kind of person who could save the nation. His sanctuary in Midian was his incubation to become the person qualified for the job. 
And when the time was ripe, Moshe was ready. The Kohen Gadol also needs to stay in the temple. Now, if you think about it, what exactly are the responsibilities of the Kohen Gadol? So he was there, but there were other Kohanim to do a lot of the work. The answer is that the sole responsibility that the Kohen Gadol had to do was the Yom Kippur services. I feel like this is the same model. It's a certain narrowed focus, a certain laser-like focus to be able to concentrate all of your efforts into the most critical national need, namely the securing of national atonement, and to start off another year with a clean slate. Don't leave the temple. Don't busy yourself with too many things. Don't spread yourself thin. Concentrate on that one thing. Put all your efforts into one specific powerful point. Narrow your focus. Abstract away everything else. You can't live everywhere you want. You have to live here and here alone. This is your world. Everything that's outside of that is not something you should focus on right now. The Kohen Gadol is primed for greatness. But to do that, he has to eliminate a lot of those distractions. And when there's a death of the Kohen Gadol, when a great leader dies, there is a leadership vacuum. And who is qualified to fill that void? Perhaps we can say that someone who's been toiling on developing themselves and their character for years and years in the incubator, when one leader passes and we need to replace them, we have to go to the incubator and see who is fully baked and ready to fill the previous leader's shoes. Messiah, we're told, will unleash a wave of people who begin to take life seriously. The Yetzirah will be excised, and humanity will have an intense thirst for knowledge of God and for fulfillment of the purpose of existence that's far greater than anything that we desire today. Moreover, people will be willing to put in what it takes. People will be willing to put in the effort. People will be willing to enter the incubator and to put in the hours and the years that it takes to develop yourself. And we will need to dramatically increase the supply of quote-unquote cities of refuge of spiritual incubators. I think this is the model of achieving excellence in any field. No one is born fully formed. Everyone needs to put in their 10,000 hours in the incubator. And the more you work on yourself and develop yourself and become a great person, the more powerful of a influencer you could be to benefit and inspire others. If you want to make a big impact in the world, you may be eager to get started. You don't waste any time after all. But when did Moshe get his big break? When was his first foray into leadership? After spending 60 years in exile? 
60 years in Midian, toiling, working on himself, striving, expending the effort required to become the person who could do the job. He was working in isolation, in obscurity, alone, removed from others, sequestered in exile. And after this extended incubation period, he became the giant who can influence and change everyone. Now, for this to actually succeed, it needs a degree of continuity. You have to stay in the incubator without leaving for a long time. And perhaps a bit of external pressure, like a vengeful relative, the threat of that is very helpful to keep you in the incubator. If there is a lull, if there are lapses, the system will not work as intended. For this to work to perfection, you cannot let your foot off the gas. Now, to make this idea a little bit more concrete, I want to share one more last idea. The Talmud tells us that Torah study is also a city of refuge. If someone is studying Torah, says the Talmud, and they're actively studying Torah, and there's no interruptions, then the angel of death cannot access them. And it tells two stories to this effect. It tells of the great Rav Chista, who was studying Torah in the yeshiva, and the angel of death came and couldn't take away his soul. And he couldn't get close to him. And he had to stage a distraction. And he went behind the yeshiva and sat on a tree until the tree cracked. And everyone stopped studying for a second. What happened? What was that loud bang? And with that brief lull, the soul of the great sage was snatched away. A second story furnished by the Talmud is regarding David. David wanted to know when he's going to die. And the Almighty told him, you're going to die in a Shabbos. So David said, okay, I will outfox the angel of death. And every Shabbos from beginning to end, he would study Torah nonstop. He wouldn't even stop for a second. And the time for David to pass arrived. And again, the angel of death cannot get anywhere near him. And again, he had to stage a distraction. And David actually was able to maintain his continuous Torah study. But he went outside to see what was going on while studying. And then he tripped and fell. And when he tripped and fell, he stopped studying for a second and the angel was able to snatch his soul. Torah study is also a city of refuge. It is the ultimate incubator to develop and actualize your gifts. Perhaps we can say that a well-designed yeshiva is the ultimate city of refuge. It provides protection from all the foreign and dangerous winds in the world at large. You're away from that vengeful relative who wants to kill you. And in there, you learn proper character, you develop yourself, you rehabilitate yourself from all the flaws that you walked in with. It is the ultimate incubator 
of the latent greatness within you, there's a certain focus and intensity on what it's actually supposed to do, a certain narrowing of options, commitment, and it is best done with continuity. The great Rabbi Akiva didn't stop after 12 years. He made it a complete, continuous 24-year study session. There were no breaks. It was continuous. And thus, he emerged after 24 years. If you have had the great privilege of spending time in yeshiva, I imagine that you have at least seen glimpses of how transformative such a period of incubation can indeed be. Okay, let's get to this week's A&Q answers and questions. And this week's question comes from the episode of the tribe of Gad, of God, and of Ruvain, and half the tribe of Benasha. They wanted to settle on the east bank of the Jordan River. Why? So the Torah tells us, our parsha we read, that they had lots of flock, many sheep, and the land on the other side of the Jordan had plentiful grazing area. And they struck a deal with Moshe. They will indeed join their brethren in crossing over the Jordan, in waging the war of conquest of Canaan. But their permanent residence, their permanent lands will indeed be on the other side of the Jordan. That's where they're going to be. That's where they will settle and not on the west bank of the Jordan. That is featured in Parsha. And here's the question. In the end of Deuteronomy, Moshe is giving a blessing to every tribe. And to the tribe of Gad, Moshe says the following. This is Deuteronomy chapter 33, verse 21. He chose the first portion for himself, meaning that Gad chose a portion, the lands of Sihon and Od, the lands on the east bank of the Jordan, which was the first portion of the land that was conquered by the nation. Continues Moshe, for that is where the lawgiver's plot is hidden. Because Gad knew that that's where Moshe could be buried. So here's the question. Why did the tribe of Gad want the land on the east bank of the Jordan? Was it because of the plentiful grazing area? Or was it because that is where Moshe is going to be interred? If you have an answer to this question, please send me an email, rabbi.com. And if you spell it incorrectly, I'm not going to get the email. Rabbi. Wolby, W-O-L-B-E, at gmail.com. Now, last week we asked a question as to why the Torah separates Pinchas's zealotry from his reward. And my friends, Adam, Carlos, and Noah offered versions of the following answer that I really like, that I want to share with the rest of the amazing Parsha podcast audience and family. And that is as follows. There is a very thin line between zealotry and someone who is so in love with God and so righteous and so intolerant of evil like Pinchas that will do anything, even endanger themselves, to stand up for God's honor. But there's a very thin line that separates that from vengeance, from anger, 
from some of the worst sins in the world. If the reward for Pinchas's zealotry was instantaneous, we could perhaps misinterpret it as reward comes from vengeance of any kind. We have to read Pinchas' zealotry and spend a week thinking about what he did and really investigating his deed quite thoroughly. And only then can we conclude that he was totally righteous and deserving of reward. There is a clever classification in the Talmud of people whose deeds are like Zimri, but seek reward like Pinchas. People are often deceived to view themselves as being completely righteous, as acting due to righteous indignation like Pinchas, when in reality they are more similar to Zimri. And therefore, before we lavish praise and heap reward on Pinchas, we have to ourselves study very intently why exactly Pinchas's deed is worthy of this amazing reward. And we should not be so sure that our indignation and our anger and our vengeance is indeed righteous and worthy of reward. Of course, there were many other amazing answers sent in, submitted. And as always, we appreciate that greatly. And now we are signing off. I thank you for your listenership. Have an amazing rest of your week and a fabulous, splendid, terrific, superb upcoming Shabbos. And please, God, with the help of the Almighty, we will talk again next week.